It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. In the first half of this week's show, I'll be joined by a panel of guests who will discuss the collapse in share price of food group Arista, the differing views of Michael Noonan and EU Commissioner Pierre Moscovici on corporate tax reform, and we'll also be talking about Brexit. In the second half of the show, I'll speak to Alan Cox of Core Media about a new report on the value of advertising to the Irish economy. He told us how every one euro invested in advertising delivers a net return of €5.44 to Irish companies. So why aren't more Irish companies investing in advertising? Laura Slattery of the Irish Times joins us for that conversation. If you'd like to support this podcast, you might like to tell your colleagues and friends that Inside Business is available to download for free from iTunes. You'll also find it on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. And you can have your say on issues covered by Inside Business via email at businesspodcast at irishtimes.com. Hello again, I'm joined in studio by Cliff Taylor, business editor of the Irish Times, Ian Hunter, an equities analyst with Investec, and Joe Brennan, the markets correspondent of the Irish Times. Uh, welcome to the show, gents. We're going to chat about Arista, corporate tax and Brexit. Joe, we might start with you uh, and Arista. Arista uh, once a high-flying Irish food company, better known here, I suppose, for the Cuisine de France uh, product, but yesterday it took a, a battering on the markets with the share price collapsing by uh, 32%. And it's had a pretty tough year. Uh, give us the backdrop to that. It actually goes back almost two years at this stage. If you look at the share price, I mean, it fell by 30, 32 odd percent mm. uh, yesterday. Over the last two years, it's fallen by uh, almost 55 percent. And it's kind of woes go back to it's had pretty a pretty good track record when it comes to two acquisitions. I mean, that's what the, the business has been built uh, on, as you mentioned yourself. Uh, the Cuisine de France goes down in, uh, in legendary status uh, 20 years ago um, this year when that was bought. Parbake Rose that we used to all buy in convenience stores and exactly. so forth. Who knew it would catch on? Um, and so they had a pretty good track record until about two years ago when they bought a minority stake in this French uh, frozen food company, Picard. And that it's kind of more high end uh, frozen uh, Chinese dumplings to uh, ter- frozen tiramisu. So that was kind of the area that they got into at that stage, which they hadn't really been in. Um, and a lot of question, analysts questioned 
the, the, the logic of getting into that kind of uh, business, uh, the frozen foods business, first of all, and also having a minority stake. Uh, and that's when the kind of uh, issues started kind of cropping up uh, with, with, um, with Arista. We should say that Arista grew out of what was IAWS, IAWS on Street. Yeah, so IAWS uh, bought, um, uh, bought Cuisine de France, went down that road, um, bought more kind of food type companies and uh, spun off the, 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 the original kind of the, uh, the, the agribusiness into origin in 2000. And then uh, merged with a, 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 another Swiss company, Hiestand, yeah. exactly, which they had a stake in prior to that. So that they merged that in, in 2008, and it, it, the main listing is is now in uh, in Zurich. But if you look back two years ago, it bought Picard, and since then it's had a number of issues. Mm. Uh, it's been profit warning after profit warning. Uh, kind of key issues they would have had was that. Um, uh, they, uh, they they make a lot of uh, uh, products uh, products for Subway, and Subway was uh, forced under EU legislation to move uh, production of, of of cookies and the like uh, that were consumed in the in, in Europe over to over to, to to Europe itself, which meant that they had to increase uh, obviously spending in in terms of capacity in, in in Europe on one side, and on the far side they had the American business which was under capacity uh, was running at under capacity, so they had to try and start building up that kind of business themselves get outsourcing, uh, getting contracts from, from various companies to try and, 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 and use the capacity they had. In the meantime, more recently, they've tried to uh, go down the route of their Otis Spunkmeyer, which is a, a company they bought a, a, about 10 years ago. Um, they, they wanted them to, basically they decided to go down the branded route with them. And what they're doing is they're competing with their own customers. And their customers most recently are saying, hang on, if yeah. you guys are on the shelves at the same time as us, we're going to start pulling back. And they're not even long-term contracts. They're very short-term contracts, and there's no real visibility. That's a key thing. That's a key worry for the company, I imagine. Yeah. Ian Hunter, you've been following the company as an equities analyst now for uh, some time. Would you concur with Joe's analysis? Oh, yeah, he, he's correct there. I mean, he was doing very well until about the middle of 2014, and they mm. put their SAT program in place. Margins were rising. They were growing through acquisitions. And then one or two deals started to come down the line that maybe weren't in line with what people would see as the main strategy. And the main one was the Picard, the, the, the Picard deal. And the market just couldn't see what the logic was, uh, although management kept saying there was a long-term objective on that side. But they paid $446 million for a company where they were getting no returns at all, and it's a highly indebted company. That sets the scene, mm. and at that stage then, things started to go slightly off the rails in both the North America and the European businesses in terms of their organic growth. And we're always looking for organic growth. And it was doing very well up till then, and it just started to slip. And we weren't getting kind of clarity as to what was happening. There was the change in the, in the cookie side of things, and there was spare capacity in the US. What happened then was the management said, we can fill this capacity with uh, third-party contracts. That didn't come through. So after about six months, they then said, OK, we're now going to do our own B2C. So going straight to the, to the customer with products. And this is where the Otis Spunkmeyer brand suddenly reappeared on the scene. So is this a, was this hubris uh, on the part of the company? Uh, was it a failure of strategy, a failure of management? I'm not going to say clearly a, a, a failure. Um, what they expected to do was uh, replace their capacity quite simply with the contracts from th uh, other parties that they could do their baking for and weren't able to. So they had to think of an alternative strategy. Uh, but it was kind of retrospective. It wasn't, I don't think it was uh, a proactive. It was reactive. Mm. We've got a lot of capacity. We have to fill it. Now, what they didn't uh, realise that when they were filling that with, a, with a, an offering straight to the customer, their third-party uh, players who they were producing the similar type of product who were then marketing into uh, another party as well would say, well, we don't want you 
making the same products as you are doing yourself, and you're going to be selling direct, and we're going to have to sell from you through to, to maybe the same clients. Mm. And so they've started to pull their business away, and so then we're getting volumes coming off again. So that was one of the, the one of the factors in, in this profit warning that we had uh, yesterday. So what's the company telling you? How are they going to solve this situation? Well, the, the, the difficulty they have is how they are going to get this, uh, they're branded uh, up and running. When, when they announced this about uh, 18 months ago, I think we were all fairly uh, sceptical. That, that we thought it could be done, but it would take a lot of money to do it. They would have to do a lot of promotions, a lot of material uh, you know, into the American market. What they didn't realise, of course, they were up against the, the large players, Hostess, were sitting in there uh, with the Twinkies. I mean, Otis Spunkmeyer's mm. band is almost like that. They have responded by uh, marketing campaigns themselves. Uh, and so they've got a, it, it's very difficult for them. They will have to try and, and battle that. They don't also have art, artisanal or artisanal mm. breads, which they maybe could do as well. But yeah. that's the type of thing but they're going to have to try and do. A, a 32% share price decline mm. in one day. Mm. I mean, I don't, I, maybe the banks uh, around 2008, eight nine. But I mean, what other Irish company has collapsed by that kind of size or scale uh, in, in one day well, and how many management it, teams have survived that kind of a, if, a drop if your listeners can remember uh, I think Elan probably would be the, okay. the last one that dropped substantially uh, in the past but that was in the mid 2000s that's when you were did, in your farmer days that is exactly it yes um, did management survive yes they did because the drop at that stage was new management were in uh, and they were Affecting change. Okay, well, Owen Killian's been in situ now for for some number of years. Uh, he's been with the company a long time. Yes, um, and he had a great reputation. Uh, obviously, up until a couple of years ago, up until this uh, situation, you know, things started to go awry. Should we say? Uh, so, can he survive this? Well, certainly, he has a very good reputation. He had done very well until about 2014. There have been a few what we say uh, questionable strategic moves, and we don't know why, and they haven't been properly explained. I won't go into specifics as to whether he can, but in general terms, if, if, if management uh, have a series of difficulties and has such a big impact uh, for shareholders, there has to be questions asked. Joe Ren, can own Killian survive? Yeah, I suppose um, uh, just going back a few months, um, we saw uh, Gary McGann, um, obviously of, of Smurfit, uh, come in uh, very as chairman, well, as chairman uh, and very well-respected uh, uh, board operator. Um, and certainly the share price has kind of moved up on the back of that. And I suppose that's part of the reason why we've such a, seen such a sharp drop in the share price yesterday in reaction to the profit warning itself. Interestingly enough, um, one of the first jobs that Gary now has is to look at the joint ventures that uh, the company has. And he's going out to shareholders, talking very specifically about the Picard joint venture. They have an option in two, three years' time to buy the remainder of that. I doubt that's on the table. There's talk now mm. of maybe... Yeah, but fundamentally, it. is this a broken business a model? And does it need somebody else to take charge? Well, it, it, certainly, Owen said one of the first questions that the reason why they're looking putting Picard on the table in terms of discussions it said they, when he's going when McGann is going around to shareholders the first question on their on their lips is about Picard I don't think that's the first question the first question on their lips is about the future of, of, of Owen and can he continue to be CEO of this company So what's your view Willie? I say, say there would be very harsh questions. Uh, whether he'll survive, I don't know, but I think it'll be. I think a lot of shareholders will be asking questions as to whether he, whether he can continue. Right. Okay. So when do we get the answers to this? I mean, what's the next sort of point along the road where shareholders will put it up to the company? I think the next three to six months. Next three to six months, they need to have a very definite plan for what they're going to do here, and certainly. I think shareholders will either have to be behind this management team in the next three months or 
Yeah. I think that could be e- done. Yeah, that, that would be the scale. If you see a new chairman coming into a company which is maybe needing some restructuring, you are looking at the three to six month period where he has to get his feet under the table. He has to understand the business before he makes any decisions. And I think one of the questions that was asked yesterday was why was the chairman not on the conference call? But I, one of the reasons I think this uh, profit warning was fairly specific and it was for specific reasons in the business rather than the general strategy of the business or the un- actually the underlying business in North America and Europe, which we would say is still struggling. So he still has to get his, his head around that before he makes a decision as to the, what the strategic direction is going forward. You talked about the Picard deal as well, but that now is just in the market. Most people are saying Picard deal, they cannot uh, uh, they cannot um, afford to buy mm. the rest of the stake. The question is, how much can they get out uh, from it? Uh, how much value right. can they get from it in the end? And Ian, in your opinion, does it put Arista, do the events of the last sort of couple of years put Arista in play as a takeover target? Well, the, the, the difficulty with it is it's such a uh, diverse company. It is actually one of the biggest companies in what it does in the world. Uh, so it is a difficult one. We have looked at, is there anybody potentially uh, that could take them over? Most companies are in, you know, their net debt situations is, is too high for them to be able to afford it. Um, <coughs> In the current climate, one of the ones that might be able to, and you're looking at, is the huge uh, Mexican bakery company, Bimbo. But whether they are looking at their own difficulties, etc., because their main market is the States. Yeah, okay. All right, we're going to move on to uh, this week. A couple of interesting uh, conferences held in Dublin, one uh, held by the Irish Times, a corporate tax summit, where Michael Noonan and the EU Commissioner Pierre Moscovici were uh, speakers. And uh, Cliff Taylor, you were there. You participated in one of the panel Mm. discussions. Uh, A very interesting speech, as I thought, both from Noonan and Moscovici, but taking very different uh, stances on this proposal for a consolidated corporate tax in the EU. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the problems with corporation tax <coughs> evident at the conference was the, the host of acronyms you have to, uh, you have to grapple with. CCCTB. CCCTB, BEPS, whatever, and, and many more. OECD and so forth, yeah. Indeed, yeah. But the CCCTB, the Common Consolidated Corporate Tax Base, basically a European move to try and introduce a common system across Europe for taxing big companies. And this has been on the cards before. Uh, and, and was kind of killed off four or five years ago by opposition. And in the current environment, where there's a lot of controversy about how little tax a lot of big companies pay, the European Commission are trying to revive it again. And they've, they've changed it and tweaked it and done things, as Muscovici, Pierre Muscovici, the, the commissioner, said yesterday, to try and make it more attractive for small firms and for encouraging research and all that. But it's still a red rag to Ireland uh, because uh, we... Ireland fears that it's, go- it's going to uh, remove some of our corporate tax base uh, mm. and, and basically be a land grab b- by a land grab by Germany and France. Yeah, this is the interesting thing about yesterday. So Michael Noonan came out and, and the first time I've heard him say this, he said, look, this EU proposal, this is actually going to narrow the corporate tax base in Ireland. This is going to lead to corporations paying less tax in Ireland. We're going to have to make this up by getting more from personal tax. Pierre Moscovici said, no, that's not going to happen. You need to talk to us about how this is going to work. Uh, we don't accept that, that yeah. this is going to be the case. So this could actually be good for Ireland in the long term. His basic argument was that there's going to be growth across uh, within the EU economy yeah. and there'll be a lot more investment taking place, including in Ireland. And so sort of in the round, it'll it benefit be Ireland. Yeah, yeah, but I think, you know, we can expect Ireland nonetheless to oppose this and a number of the other EU countries around the table. And it needs unanimity, doesn't it? It does need unanimity, unanimity sorry. And, and there's two bits to it, I suppose. The first is the idea of a, of a common tax base. This is the first thing that Muscovici is, is pushing, which he hopes might be in in two or three years' time, which basically means the rules would be aligned across Europe yeah. for the way companies pay tax, carrying some dangers for Ireland, but not perhaps you know too much. 
the real game changer for us is the idea of a consolidated tax base where all the tax would be collected centrally and distributed to all the different European countries. And, and the risk for us in that scenario is that a lot more would be paid uh, on the basis of where goods are sold rather mm. than where they're produced. So we're a small market. We don't have many consumers. So more of the tax might end up being paid in Germany and France. Uh, I was mm. going to say Britain, but of course they're going to be, yeah, they're so, going to be gone. So what are the chances of this being implemented? Oh, it's a long road, Kieran, and uh, there's been a lot of opposition to it before. You do feel, I, I guess, the change is that there, there is now a fair wind behind these ideas of collecting more tax from big companies. So I think there is going to be a big change over the next few years. And there's a bit of a fight between the OECD and the European Commission about how this is going to be done and who takes charge of the whole process. So it could end up being quite messy, but I do think we are looking at a process of yeah. significant change. And I think the key bottom line for Ireland is we have used our corporation tax rate and the whole way the structure works here as a big incentive to get companies to put money in here. I think that's going to be less doable in future we're going to have to compete on other things because I think the tax okay. the tax field is going to be is going to be leveled out a fair bit and Minister Noonan I, I thought also made a couple of interesting comments about Brexit he said it could take six years or more yep. before a deal is negotiated between the EU and the UK and also that in terms of the common travel area which Theresa May said she would like to maintain between Ireland and Britain mm. in her speech last week he said that the key thing uh, in that for Ireland was the fact that it gave people the right to work. It yeah. gave them labour rights in the yeah. UK rather than just, you know, giving us the rights to uh, go into Absolutely. London or whatever airport and, yeah. and sort of stand yeah. in a different queue. It's more about the labour rights that it yeah. offers Irish people. That's the key thing. I mean, and, and let's let's be straight about it. It's been a kind of a market when Ireland, when unemployment goes up here, it's emigration valve, to London, it? it's, it's a vital valve for the Irish economy and the government will want that to continue. It looks like that should be doable. Um, there may be some bureaucracy involved. Uh, there's talk that there will be kind of arrangements, visa type arrangements operated at an employer level in the UK. So they'll have to make returns for their, uh, you know, employees coming from other European countries, European Union countries. I think the government and Ireland's negotiators will hope that the kind of special arrangements and the favourable arrangements, for example, in relation to people being unemployed and going straight on to uh, onto unemployment benefit in Britain and, and those kind of things will, will be able to continue. And okay. you, you would have thought that's possible. The trickier bit, I think, is in terms of tariffs and customs because we can't negotiate a special deal there. Uh, we're going to be in with Europe there. And, and if there are tariffs between yeah. UK and Europe, there's going to be tariffs between Ireland and yeah. Europe. And, and he did also make it clear to that. the conference that we will be on the EU side of the table in those uh, Absolutely. negotiations. We'll be, we'll be on the EU side. We'll be arguing for Britain to get a good deal and to get as free trade as possible. Uh, but um, you look, we've seen all the noise and the fury yeah, and it's yeah, going to be it's okay. going to be messy, very messy. Joe, you were at uh, an IDA organised uh, financial forum, uh, financial services forum in Dublin Castle where Brexit was very much again a theme. And uh, in your piece in the Irish Times today, you say how the government was on a charm offensive with four ministers there trying to hopefully, I presume, lure some companies uh, here from the UK. Yeah, um, I suppose it, look, it was the first opportunity uh, post the Theresa May address uh, where she outlined uh, fairly clearly that um, the UK would not only be leaving the single market but also the customs union. So there was plenty of, at least... Well, she said they wouldn't be seeking full membership of the customs union, which isn't quite the same thing. That There might be some elements of the customs union... Something that is close to, but, but actually leaving it. Um, 
so yeah, so against that backdrop, you had um, you had uh, a, a room of about three, four hundred bankers, most of international bankers, for this um, European Financial Forum. Um, I suppose Ireland had, and certainly the government had been coming under pressure and had been criticised in most recent times just for how its its approach to trying to win business um, from the UK, uh, not being seen or not wanting to be seen to be moving with indecent haste as other kind of countries such as France, uh, Luxembourg, uh, uh, Frankfurt in Germany and, and Poland were kind of more inclined to kind of beat the drums when they when they head to the city of London. So Ireland was kind of going for a much more softly, softly approach and understandably so given the sensitivities, not not least with Northern Ireland. Um, so and again, this, the conference is kind of, everyone's trying to kind of work out uh, what really the nature of the deal is going to be and what parts of the business uh, that various UK-based financial firms will have to move to other parts of the EU um, um, as a result of Brexit. But a few of them, very interestingly, um, Citigroup had been kind of, uh, has been bandied around as, as one that may have to move uh, a lot of... Uh, a lot of um, it's already got a substantial operation here, isn't it? In, in Ireland, it's got its, its European retail base. Uh, is basically the European retail bank uh, is, is based in Ireland. Uh, the big concern for them is their broker dealership um, and they have to re base that from the UK to somewhere else in Europe and Ireland is one of the countries that they are looking at in regard to that. Now they're also talking about expanding and growing the, the, the consumer business that they have based in Ireland as well. You have Citigroup as well, uh, another uh, bank that um, had moved a prime brokerage uh, subsidiary to Ireland um, in late, actually this time last year and they are looking at alternatives as well in, in Europe as well so Ireland could benefit from that. Right. Ian Hunter, has Investec figured out what uh, Brexit's going to mean for Ireland? It's a very difficult question because we really don't know what the uh, whether it's going to be uh, what form it's going to take. Actually, the area I'm working in, which is food and beverages, is one of the most affected potentially. One of the most exposed. It, it is one the of the most companies. one of the most exposed, and uh, and we've been talking to companies on the back of this, and quite a number of are already well uh, exposed into the European market. So they're saying, look, there is the UK. We, we can work in, into Europe and try and increase our presence, particularly in France. Uh, quite a number of other ones have got their own production facilities in the UK. So they're saying, okay, we'll try and supply everything in the UK from our UK facilities. But they're still looking, they're still wondering what's going to happen, what's going to happen with the tariff situation. Uh, I think uh, quite recently they were trying to work out if it goes to the, the WTO yeah. backstop type thing. How damaging might that be for Irish food exports? Well, the thoughts are that the tariffs could be up to 40% if you're looking at a, a WTO and you're adding all the different level, layers that have to be put on onto a tariff. Now, that's maybe to an extreme, but that's the kind of level you're looking at. So, I mean, that makes the, the, uh, an Irish product not, uh, it's not commercially viable into the into the UK, unless there's some other way of getting through the system. But again, we're talking theoretically because we don't know what the, the end uh, situation is going to be. Cliff? Yeah, I mean, the story with tariffs, I suppose, is there are odd things that have grown up over many years of trading you know, across the world, uh, and they tend to be higher on bigger products, bulkier products, heavier products, and more traditional products. So food products are, 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 are the classic ones, and particularly meat, which is a very high... Uh, so I think, as Ian said, we're, we are going to see more Irish companies establishing subsidiaries, buying subsidiaries in, in, in the UK. We've seen another move by Arnua today to up its its cheese production. In the UK, they're pretty big in the market there already. Uh, but I think we're going to see a lot of other companies uh, because if you make something in the UK, then you can sell it freely. You don't have to go through the customs sure. checks. You don't have to go through the tariffs. OK. All right. Listen, that's going to play out for uh, many years to come, I suspect. Cliff Taylor, Joe Brennan and Ian Hunter, thank you for joining us. We'll take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Alan Cox of Core Media and Laura Slattery of the Irish Times about the value of advertising to the Irish economy. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. 
Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back to the show. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. I'm joined in studio by Alan Cox, Chief Executive of Core Media, and Laura Slattery of the Irish Times to consider a new report on the value of advertising to the Irish economy. Called Marketing Multiplied, it's been released by Core Media, Ireland's biggest media buying agency, and the Association of Advertisers in Ireland. Alan Cox, uh, welcome to the show. You're one of three authors of this report, uh, alongside the Irish Times columnist Chris Johns and economist Jim Power, who's well known to us here on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Your main finding seems to be that every Every euro invested by a company in advertising in Ireland delivers a net return on investment of €5.44 for that company, which seems like a fantastic return. I'm just wondering how you calculated that and also if that's the kind of return that can be achieved from advertising, why more companies aren't doing it? So uh, certainly in terms of the calculation, it's it's based on science and based on econometric modelling. Um, So what we've done in arriving at those figures is we've looked at a series of uh, campaigns for our clients over a two-year period across a number of different sectors in order to establish that for every one euro that they invested in advertising, it delivered a net return or a profit of 544. Um, That's based on looking at all of the various variables that can impact on clients' revenue and uh, feeding them into the model and having an expert data scientist analysing the data to provide that outcome. Mm. So why aren't uh, why aren't more companies doing it? I mean, I appreciate that some companies are probably making a bigger return and others a smaller one. This is an average return, yes. I, I guess. But why aren't more companies doing it if it's such a, a sure thing, if you like? Well, I, I think that's one of the problems in that, um, you know, advertising, marketing generally and advertising in particular, there's some cynicism uh, that exists, particularly uh, in boardrooms where they don't quite believe uh, its effectiveness. And I think the reason for that is uh, because of the marketing industry's uh, failure to prove its case um, by not investing enough in the so science. That's your failure then, Core Media and your colleagues in the Absolutely. industry. Absolutely. I, I think uh, we're all complicit in that. And, and uh, it's not just an Irish issue, it's a global issue that uh, science um, has been slow to come into our business and to do what it's done for other industries and products that we use every day. Um, it's about time that science now has uh, its role to play in marketing. Um, so we have uh, 10 data scientists uh, in our business, and uh, we three years ago we didn't have any. Um, so yeah. we're very serious about this and uh, ensuring that we invest in understanding what we do and therefore can be more predictive in our recommendations to clients. Judging by the American TV series Mad Men, I think it was more about alcohol than science back in the day in advertising. Uh, it seems to have been, yes. I, I must say... It might Did be you odd. experience any of that? It might be odd for me to say that, but uh, Mad Men was not on my list of, of uh, required viewing, so I can't comment too much on it. Yeah, uh, Laura, one of the findings of the report is that marketing as... Um, as Alan has just pointed out, isn't taken seriously in the boardroom. Why do you think that is? Well, I think for some reason it's become, I guess, more fashionable for people who reach the top echelons of a lot of companies to come from just different disciplines. There's the finance director is the guy or the, or the woman who becomes the CEO rather than the marketing director. And it just it seems to be at the very top, perhaps marketing is seen as this other silo, uh, this sort of nice thing that we have, but, you know, the, at the first sign of trouble, which, you know... Seen we, as a cost rather than yeah, an investment. Yeah, seen as a cost rather than an investment at the first sign of any kind of recession... 
the marketing budget gets cut, which is obviously the, in many ways, the opposite of what a lot of companies should be doing. And obviously, you know, depends on the sector. Um, but there was one statistic uh, quoted in the report, um, just it was a study um, of S&P 1500 companies. I think there was something like 65,000 board members um, in that group. And something like 2.6% of them have really had a senior management, uh, senior marketing experience uh, who were on, on the boards of those companies. And that is a very low number, it has to be said. Yeah. Alan, one of the interesting things from your findings, I thought, was that loyalty programs have very little long term effect. I mean, this country is awash with loyalty programs. I'm sure if we all opened our wallets there, um, you know, cards would come tumbling, tumbling yes. out from the various retailers and so forth. And yet they seem to have very little long term effect. Uh, yes. And, and it, that's been proven by Byron Sharp, who is a marketing scientist um, from Australia, who uh, I su- suppose made a big impact on the industry in 2010 with the, with the publication of his book, How Brands Grow. And he would be quite scathing of the marketing industry, not applying science uh, in the past. And what he did was he applied science. Um, and he, rather than talking about common sense or experience, he applied scientific laws to the issue and found very qu- clearly that um, penetration was much more profitable for brands than loyalty. Um, by penetration, I mean getting your message to more mm. people and making sure that your product is available for more people to see both in store and also through communication. So um, it doesn't mean that loyalty programs are ineffective. What it means is that penetration or getting your message to more people and getting more people to experience your brands is more profitable in the longer term. Loyalty can work well in the short term, but um, penetration is more profitable and grows brands for the longer term. Yeah, and I suppose if we look at grocery retailers, they were probably at the forefront of loyalty programs in Ireland. But in these, you know, the years since the recession, since 09 onwards, uh, people really have been shopping around, haven't they? They haven't been terribly loyal to any one particular grocer. It's whoever is offering them the best value. And they might buy certain products with one grocer and, and, and other products with other grocers. So even the idea of a loyalty Calling it a loyalty program is probably a yeah. Bit there, of a there, there, there is a mobile group of people, and and they will be attracted to what's happening, uh, you know, in the competitive set. But there's a marketing law called double jeopardy that uh, Byron Sharp refers to a lot, which is that you know small brands uh, tend to have fewer customers who are proportionately less loyal. And large brands have more customers proportionally are more loyal. So that's one of those constants mm. in marketing uh, that has driven a lot of his thinking. Yeah. Would it not be better for, you know, the likes of a Super Value or a Dunn Stores or a Tesco just to reduce their prices rather than putting all this focus into loyalty programs by offering money off and so on? In the same way that, let's say, Aldi and Lidl do. I mean, they're just based on, on prices. It's cheap prices. You come into the store, there's no loyalty programs, no cards. You just pay uh, what's advertised on the shelf. Well, I think it depends on the individual sector. But what's required is that for uh, marketers to invest in econometric modelling to unpick all of those things. Because we can speak in broad brushstrokes about the general principles, but each category is different. Mm. And uh, econometric modelling allows you to unpick the specific issues in that category and say, you know, so it just doesn't say that for every one euro that you spend in advertising, you get a profit of 544. It shows what the proportion is for each of the media mix, media that you're using in your mix. So you could get a certain percentage of that from television, a certain percentage of that from press, etc. And you're able then to optimize your mix 
of activity in order to deliver more profit for the euro you put in. So how much is spent on advertising in Ireland every year? Well, the total amount uh, last year um, was $886 million, and we're estimating that will grow to $915 million this year, about 3.3% growth in 2017. And how much of that last year would have been, let's say, traditional media, uh, print, radio, television, and how much of it would have been new media, digital, online, social media, etc.? Well, if you take the 886 million, about 290 of that was digital. Uh, and digital is, is a broad category, so uh, that consists of about 39% of that was display advertising, uh, 10% classified, and then the balance search being 51%. So a huge proportion in search. And I but presume that's the figure that's going up. Actually, dis- the display is, is growing faster than search. Um, I think people are now realising that the, the benefits of display advertising, uh, in particularly in relation to direct response um, media activity. And uh, in the past... It wasn't given much credit, um, but very often a lot of the search benefit comes from display activity. Yeah. I just want to point, just mention there that, that Facebook advertising is typically categorised, am I right, as display. So, right. so although display is doing well at the moment, it's not necessarily great news for uh, news for publishers. Yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, Laura, you're a consumer. Um, what impact has advertising, does it have on your buying decisions and how have your buying decisions perhaps changed over the past, let's say, three to five years as, as the world has changed, become more digitised, more online and so on? Well, Kieran, I knew you were going to ask me this question, so I was just thinking about a few examples. And I think these are examples that a lot of people will relate to because we all like to think we're not very susceptible to advertising and, and marketing. But, you know, I see some of the figures go, you know, globally going behind these big categories that I know I myself have, uh, have taken up over the last five years. And one that springs to mind in the drinks category is Prosecco. Uh, which has really uh, sort of uh, become the sort of drink of choice as you walk into a wedding reception uh, amongst a certain generation in Ireland um, at, at the expense of champagne and the champagne industry are, are, are worried about this. Is, is they think well, that they, might have been down to austerity in fairness. Well, I mean, obviously pricing always, you know, comes into play, but the, once it gets into people's heads that something is sort of fashionable, <laughs> that that's, you know, that's purely often as a result of marketing. It doesn't come out of the ether. Um, but uh, but uh, the other thing, I mean, just just looking at some of the the big advertisers in Ireland, uh, and I'm not uh, I'm not a customer of this company, but I think I think uh, even if you're not a, comp- a customer of this company, you're definitely probably aware of their brand, and that's uh, Sky. Um, they are just a massive advertiser on television and out of home, and you know you see you see it everywhere. You're aware of what they do, and so even if you're not with them, the battle the, half the battle is there because you know that they exist, that they're an option. Um, so it, I'd be foolish to say that I'm not influenced by advertising because I think we we, we all are. Yeah, and it's uh, it's email for for you, is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the other thing. Email. I mean, online shopping is just, uh, you know, again, it's it's just it's it's a it's there before you. The, the trigger is there, and I think uh, um, Amazon has, has 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 proven that over the years as. as uh, it's uh, it's there to, to, to prompt you with uh, emails, and I think a lot of the attention has been on social media advertising. But the good old fashioned email uh, database is, is still, uh, for me anyway, it's very influential. Uh, there's a couple of uh, clothing retailers I won't mention uh, who are very good. At, yes, let's uh, not give them cheap advertising. No, let's not give them give them uh, some some freebies. But let's just say um, that there's 
uh, you know, they, they uh, a tiny little bit of the personal touch, even though we might be um, sort of uh, sceptical about it or, or, or you know, uh, sort of recognise it yeah. for the cheap tr- trick it is. It, it works at the same time. Yeah. I think also from a, an economic point of view, advertising and marketing are hugely important economically uh, for countries. I mean, there's been a, a huge number of studies on that. Um, the one most recently uh, launched in the last couple of weeks by the World Federation of Advertisers, done by Deloitte, found that advertising drove about 4.6% of the EU economy, um, which is extraordinary. You know, McKinsey found that advertising contributed about 15% of the growth in G20 economies um, in the... And yet so many people are sceptical about it. I know, and it's because um, I think we have failed to get the message across. And that's one of the reasons why we have uh, produced this book, Marketing Multiplied, um, which contains a a very robust analysis of the macroeconomic numbers and also the microeconomic numbers. And is, if you like, a very expansive guide for marketers about what are the levers they can pull to be more effective in what they do. Yeah, Laura. There's a real old saying that I'm sure every single marketing student uh, comes across probably on their first week of college and certainly it comes up on every single presentation I I go to. It's a century old and it's uh, attributed to a guy called John Wanamaker who was a US department store owner and he said half of my advertising spending is, is wasted, but the trouble is I don't know which half. So that's that's been a sort of a, a sort of a, a mantra over the decades. And I think uh, what Alan and a lot of other people are saying is that maybe that can change because with data we can help change that, that and prove the case to to boardrooms that you know prove what type of marketing is invested. Yeah. Is, Absolutely. Is I mean, if John Wanamaker was here today, I'd say all you need to do to find the answer to that question, that age-old question, is invest in econometric modelling and you will know exactly what's working and what's not. Yeah, I suspect the the net return to someone like Reiner is actually greater than 544 because of all the free press he gets for the various uh, statements that Michael O'Leary makes. I mean, marketing is not just about advertising. It's about all marketing channels. And PR is a very important part of that, actually. Uh, And yeah, the the range of return, I mean, the 544 is an average, but the range is quite extraordinary. For some categories, it's much less. And for others, it's much higher. Retail, for example, be much higher. Okay, and Alan, finally, um, your research has shown that long-term brand building uh, is better than a short-term campaign. Explain to us why. Well, it's just that that there are the, I suppose, the optimal split of budgets for a marketing campaign should be 60% based on long-term brand building activity and 40% based on sales activation, short-term activity. You need um, a blend of the two. But unfortunately, there has been a a growth in short-termism driven by the recession, which has meant that that is out of balance now. And about 47% of budgets are now spent in short-term. And evidence from Peter Field and Les Binnett, who did an amazing study of 880 case studies in the UK, have found that you need to get that balance right, 60-40, in order to deliver optimum growth and profit. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, Alan Cox from Core Media and Laura Slattery of the Irish Times, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it from this episode of Inside Business. My thanks to Cliff Taylor, Ian Hunter, Joe Brennan, Alan Cox and Laura Slattery. Declan Conlon produced the podcast with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. And if you'd like to make any comments or suggestions about Inside Business, contact us by email at businesspodcast at irishtimes.com. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.